Well, good morning. Welcome to worship. I'm glad you're with us, whether you're here in person, whether you are online. I hope that you have a blessed day and a, a blessed uh, coming week. The scripture for today is from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And uh, Luke, a little bit about Luke. Luke was a, a Gentile man. He, he was a non-Jew. He was a physician. He was a historian. And uh, he puts his gospel together in such a way that certain themes emerge throughout different chapters. And uh, today when we read a passage from Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, as we're going to see, it has to deal with the idea and theme of, of gratitude. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then Jesus said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Lou Gehrig was one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game. He hit 493 home runs. He batted 340, 340 as a lifetime batting average. He was a part of six World Series championship teams with the Yankees. He was a multiple all-star. And he's perhaps even better known for his nickname, the Iron Horse, because of his stamina, his endurance. He played in 2,130 consecutive baseball games, which was finally broken by Cal Ripken Jr. a number of years ago. His records would have been even greater, but when he was 36 years old, his career was cut short when he was diagnosed with ALS, which is often commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It killed him less than two years later. Now, Gehrig was never much of a talker. He was kind of a stoic guy. He let his bat and his play do his talking. But on July 4th, 1939, he walked to the middle of the infield of Yankee Stadium and approached a microphone. And he began to talk to the, the crowd. He thanked the vendors and the ticket takers and the people behind the scenes for doing their jobs well, even though they never got thanks, and, and for doing their job in such a way that he was able to play the game that he loved. And then he said the words that those of us who know his story always remember when we hear his name. He said into the microphone, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Why do we remember those words so well? Maybe because we're moved by his gratitude in a situation where he could have easily been bitter or angry or despairing. The luckiest man in the world cut down his prime, pulled away from the game he loved at the height of his career. Today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Maybe we remember it because of the dignity and the grace and the class that he showed in the face of this personal tragic situation. Maybe we remember the words because we've seen the old newsreel shots of, of Gehrig when he walks to the end, middle of the infield, and we can tell by the way he's moving that his body is already being affected by this horrible disease. 
Maybe it's because we sense the character of the man. Uh, Against all reason, he is truly and genuinely grateful. How do you define gratitude? Somebody asks you that, your, your, your mind runs to thank, thankfulness, right? Giving thanks, not taking something for granted, being, being grateful. I, I saw, I read a, a, a definition of gratitude that I thought was interesting. A little bit different way of thinking about it, but I think it's helpful. This person defined gratitude as a gift God gives us so that we can be blessed by all his other gifts. A gift that God gives us so that we can be blessed by all his other gifts. What does that mean? Well, maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. Gratitude is sort of like, sort of like taste buds. Okay? I know some of you here today, um, or maybe online, maybe you've had COVID, and perhaps you've experienced one of the symptoms that we hear about, read about, the loss of taste, the loss of smell, not real fun. You still eat because you have to, but you don't enjoy it as much because you've lost the ability to, to really appreciate it, right? Gratitude function is, to, is, is given to us by God is to function in the same way. To, with gratitude, we're able to experience a deeper sense of joy and fulfillment of, of just the basic things that we're given in life. You take gratitude out of the picture and we're more inclined to envy others. We're more inclined to gripe about things. We're more likely to be dissatisfied with the things that we don't have rather than be grateful for the things that we do have. We see a clear distinction between gratitude and ingratitude in our text today, or at least, at the very least, gratitude in, in a lower level of gratitude or indifference, perhaps. And we pick up the story. Jesus is walking the long road from his home in Galilee to Jerusalem. And, and if you look at a first century map of Palestine, Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his, his life, is north of Samaria. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is south of Samaria, Jerusalem being the capital city. And, and Samaria, of course, what we know about it is Samaria was filled with, with these people called Samaritans who were not looked upon favorably by the Jewish people. And the reason they were not looked upon favorably was because they had intermarried with the people around them who weren't Jewish, not, you know, Gentile people, and they had adopted some of those religious practices and lifestyle choices and behaviors and, and all these things, and, and, and they were considered uh, outcasts and, and traitors, uh, half-breeds, and heretics. And so a lot of Jewish people would just avoid going through Samaritan. They would not talk to a Samaritan. They'd avoid them. But as we read through the Gospels, Jesus, time and again, not only doesn't avoid them, he seeks them out. He interacts with them. He treats them with respect. He heals them. He, 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 he interacts with them, which shocks the disciples. And here we see this happen again. Let's pick it up in verse 11 again. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village... So again, he's seeking them out. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now again, on top of being, uh, we, we all, we'll find out, well, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll, we'll stop, we'll drop that, come back to that. These lepers, of course, would have been treated as outcasts. 
you know, because leprosy was a disease that had no cure, no real treatment. It was infectious, highly infectious. And um, they were to be physically separated from everybody else. So it wasn't just a physical trauma they were going through. There was also emotional trauma. There was, there was mental trauma. There was, there was physical, or, you know, spiritual trauma. They were, they were lacking connection and community because of this disease. And, and, and listen to how um, these lepers were viewed. Listen to this in Leviticus 13. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes... Let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and crowd unclean. Unclean. The reason they had to do this was so that people could see them from a distance and say, that person is infected. That person is to be avoided. And as long as, as long, it says, then as long as they have the infection, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having to live alone? Or with other people who have the disease, can't be with your family, can't be with your friends, can't go to worship, can't go to work, can't share a meal in town, can't give somebody a hug, can't shake a hand, and you're saying, yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that, right? And if somebody comes near you, you had to shout out and clean, well, we don't have to do that. But can you imagine the shame and the pain, the toll that would take upon you? And then imagine that it wasn't just for two weeks or for a season or, or for, for a, a season of, 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 of a few months. Or, this was for life. They were in a lifelong quarantine, separated from family and friends, no physical touch, ostracized and avoided. And you had to yell unclean, unclean when everybody came around you. Can you imagine that? If you look at Leviticus 13 a little bit more, you'll see that the only way that a leper could be reinstated to, to community and to, to life, normal life again, was if they would go to the priest, the priest would examine them and determine that the disease was in remission. Or maybe they thought maybe something racks had happened and it was gone. And if that happened, then they say, you're clean. And you could go back to your life, to your family meals, to your hugs, to just normalcy again. But you'd also probably know, even if that happened for a short while, that it was very, very likely it was going to come back again. And you'd have to do the whole thing over again. And eventually it would stay and it would take your life. Back to the story in Luke 17. So Jesus is walking along and he hears his name called. And he takes a good look at them in. He sizes up the situation. And then he says to the, the ten lepers from a distance, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, I'm guessing these t- ten guys were a little bit confused. The disciples might have been a little bit too as well. Uh, they were probably feeling torn. It's like, well, these, these people are infectious. We need to stay away from them. That's what the law says. We can't interact with them. On the other hand, they're thinking, well, you know, this is kind of different. Jesus usually is, is, is more hands-on. You know, he, he walks up to people. He looks them in the eyes. They can see his compassion and his empathy. He, he touches them. He, he rubbed mud in the eyes of a blind guy so he could see. He, he raises you up. He, you know, he, this is, Jesus is hands-on. But here, from a distance, Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Seems kind of odd. 
But the lepers, they don't have anything to lose. They do what they're asked to do. So in that sense, they show they show a measure of faith, don't they? But they only go a few moments before they discover that something's happening to their disfigured bodies. Their diseased skin, their, their rotting skin begins to be made whole. Their, their limbs begin to function again. And, and they're overwhelmed. They laugh and they leap and they run with joy towards their families, to their homes, to their normal lives again. At least nine of them do. Because we're told that one of them, one of them returns. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then Luke adds a telling phrase. He anticipates the surprise in the reader. And he says, and he was a Samaritan. Now, many of us have heard this story a number of times over the years. I've taught or preached it a number of times over the years. And sometimes when something is really familiar we can lose a little bit of appreciation for what's going on. It can have less of an impact upon us. We're like, well, I, I know where this is going. and this. So it might be helpful to think of it this way. Suppose this story happened in the 21st century in the U.S., maybe here in Salina, Kansas. And instead of nine Jewish men and one Samaritan, you've got nine evangelical Christians and one other, maybe a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, a Buddhist, an agnostic, an atheist. And instead of leprosy, they have some highly contagious disease and it's terminal. There is no cure. There is no treatment for it at all. The only option is put them in isolation until the disease does what it does. And they can't go home. They can't be with family. They can't be comforted by them. They can't have physical touch. And their only hope is Jesus. And Jesus heals them. And all ten of them, all ten of them are healed. And they're thrilled and they're overjoyed and they leap from their hospital beds. The doctors check them out. Yep, you can go home. They rush home. They, be, they celebrate. They have a big meal. The friends come over. The family comes over. Everything's back to the way it was. And Jesus is left standing there. Would you be surprised if the only one who came back was the the Muslim, the Jew, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the agnostic, the atheist, the only one who came back and thanked Jesus? I think we probably would. Jesus' disciples, I think, were. Because Jesus says, we're not all ten clans. He's talking to the disciples. We're, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus doesn't mean that in a negative sense or pejorative sense at all. He says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Ten are healed. Ten get their life back. And we expect them to be grateful. One comes back. Nine seem to forget about it and rush back to their families. And we ask why. Why just one? I mean, it doesn't seem right. It offends us a little bit. It's odd that only one is grateful, only one appreciates what Jesus has done for them. And we think, hey, if it was me, I'm going back to Jesus. I'm hanging out with Jesus for a while. I'm starting there, and then I'll go see my family and my friends. Then I'll go back to the priest. It seems not right, does it? It works itself out the same way in our lives, right? You do something really nice for somebody. You go out of your way. Maybe you help them financially. Maybe you give up something 
to help them. Maybe you spend extra time with them. Whatever it is, you do something, a really nice gesture for them. And you don't do it because you, for the gratitude, you do it because it's the right thing to do and because you care about them and so on and so forth. Hopefully that's why we do those things. But it would be nice to get a card or a text or a phone call a simple thank you, some sort of gesture in kind, just because it shows they understand and they appreciate, you know, what we've done for them. Doesn't seem right. And yet, is gratitude a default reaction in our world today? I mean, we live in the richest country in the history of the world. Is an attitude of gratitude pervasive in in our lives? You know, it, it, it's weird, but sometimes it seems that having too much makes us ungrateful. I mean, we talk a lot about being grateful when we get something we've really been wanting, but the truth is, if we really got everything we wanted, I think we'd struggle with being grateful for only, only things we'd be grateful for were things that topped what we got last. I mean, parents know this instinctively, at least we should. We don't give our kids everything they ask for. We don't give them everything they want. Even if we could do that, why don't we do that? We don't want them to become spoiled and entitled. And we don't want them to to lose the ability to be grateful and to appreciate things. It's it's sad that it seems that often we as human beings, we, we have to experience the possibility of losing something or someone that we love before we understand how grateful we ought to be for that thing or that person. I mean, you hear that all the time. You'll see it in the news or stories. Somebody works really hard at a company and his coworker drops dead and the guy thinks, why am I working 60, 70, 80 hours a week? Why am I always distracted when I'm at home? This is crazy. And they try to readjust their priorities. Why is it that those sort of things seem to be needed to jar us back to reality? That God has blessed us in so many ways. And there's so many things that we can be thankful for. I don't know, maybe we can't help ourselves. Maybe just human beings were flawed that way. Maybe it's just a personality thing. Some people just naturally seem to ooze gratitude. Others really struggle with wanting more, not being satisfied. Maybe it's we can't help ourselves. But but I I saw a study or researcher who concluded that habitually grateful people have what they call, I like this phrase, a low threshold of gratitude. That's kind of a takeaway I want to encourage you to think about what that means and try to lower your threshold for gratitude. What does that mean? Well, It's like people who are grateful for simply seeing a beautiful sunset or sunrise. People who are just grateful for the smile of a a child, a simple, small gesture that doesn't really even cost anything. They're just, they're grateful. It doesn't take much for them to be grateful because they understand they've received something that they did not earn or maybe even deserve. I want to be like that. I want to have a low Gratitude threshold. To be thankful for the little things, the ordinary, everyday gifts that God gives us. 
I think gratitude, we can, we can develop it. We can, we can learn to be grateful. We can teach ourselves to be aware of the little things around us. Apostle Paul seems to think so. He urges us in 1 Thessalonians 5, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why would God want us to be thankful in all circumstances? There are some really difficult things that are horrific, right? I think God wants us to be thankful, not denying the reality of the hard things and the loss, but to be thankful to find things to be thankful for because it teaches us to be content. It gives us joy. It gives us peace. I mean, think about it. The people who are most grateful are the most joyful, right? And who doesn't want more joy in their lives? Who doesn't want to be around people who are full of joy? It doesn't seem to, there's a, there doesn't seem to be a, a direct correlation between our good luck, our blessings, our health and our wealth and a thankful heart. We tend to be the most thankful when we focus on the little things. And so the second takeaway is that gratitude is is something we can develop. We can determine to have an attitude of gratitude and we can exercise and grow our gratitude by, by daily thanking God for things. Far you feel a long ways from God, Try thanking him for things regularly, intentionally. I think you'll find that you start to, that gap, that distance begins to close. You know, every single day God does something for us, doesn't he? We live in an incredible, beautiful planet. We're created in God's image. We have the ability to think and to create and to make decisions and to express love and to to receive love. We are created to be in community with God and our creator and community with family and friends. We are blessed to live in a time of history with amazing possibilities. Our ancestors, even a hundred years ago, can't imagine, could not imagine of the things that we have access to, things we can dream of and pull off. We've been spared of much of what the world experiences, widespread hunger, famine, wars. Our standard of living is among the highest in the world. We have an incredible health care system, even with some of its problems. Educational opportunities are the best anywhere. For whatever reason, we have been blessed to live in a time in a country which is unsurpassed in human history in its opportunities. And is this because we're more virtuous? Because we're smarter? Because we're harder working? Or is it simply because this is something we have not earned, maybe don't even deserve, but God has blessed us? It's, it's grace. And our own, our own worthiness may not have anything, does not have anything to do with it. Now, I know this Thanksgiving is, is going to be tough for a lot of people this year. Our normal normalcy is is perhaps gone over this Thanksgiving. We may not be able to see the people we want to or do the things we want to. Things are just sort of unusual. There's this underlying kind of tension and and pressure and stress. But I would encourage you, even in the midst of this, not diminishing it at all, but even in the midst of this, one thing that we can do that will help us is is to practice gratitude. 
to remember what God has done for us in our past, to focus on what he's doing for us in our present, and to, and to be grateful and confident about what he's going to do for us in our future. There's a story about a famous English Bible scholar named Matthew Henry. This happened back in the last century, or the 19th century. And he was attacked by thieves, and he was robbed of his wallet. And he wrote these words in his diary about his experience. He wrote, let me be thankful. First, I was never robbed before. Second, although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, although they took my all, it wasn't that much. And fourth, let me be thankful because it was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. I think sometimes something we could do to help each other is along with saying, hey, how's how you doing? Which is a good thing to ask. You know, we want to hear about people's lives. Hopefully we do. We're interested in them. How can we support you, encourage you? Might be also to ask, for what are you thankful? For what are you thankful? It might kind of be a good sort of attitude adjustment that most of us need. From I know that I need that from time to time. For what are you thankful Give thanks in all circumstances, Paul tells us. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we express our thanks. We are grateful for how you have blessed us. Lord, we are thankful for the blessings that we are aware of. We're And we thank you for the blessings of which we are not aware. We thank you for the gift of the world in which we live. We thank you for the gift of family and friends, of the life that we have, the the breath that we breathe. We thank you for the simple things like a sunset, a smile of a child, uh, a song on on the radio, uh, Lord, for a good meal with friends or family. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, through whom we have forgiveness, through whom we have the gift of life forever. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who fills us and guides us. Lord, for all this and so much more, we we give you thanks and we give you praise. Lord, help us to be people who are increasingly lowering our threshold for gratitude. And help us, Lord, to be people who who daily practice gratitude and who grow, therefore, in our joy and our peace and our contentment in you, Lord. We offer ourselves to you now gratefully and humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.